Welcome to season two of Classical Education, a podcast for those who believe in rediscovering the art of asking questions, engaging in conversation, and attending to the ideas at the heart of well-ordered teaching and learning. Adrian Fries and Trey Bailey invite you to join them on a journey in pursuit of the true, the good, and the beautiful as we participate in the great conversation and listen to the many voices coming from the world of classical education. Well, today, Trey and I are delighted to have on our show a a repeat guest. In fact, I think, Karen, you might be the first repeat guest we've ever had. Um, Karen Glass was on a season one, episode 17. And um, today we're having her on to talk about the seminal work Norms and Nobility by David Hicks that everybody talks about and uh, says that it is a very important book for all educators to read. And so we're excited to have her on. And one of the reasons we're having her on is to announce that Karen will be leading a book discussion for our beautiful teaching consulting um, online courses. And that will start in January and registration is now open. Um, I'll also be teaching a few um, one-off courses. Trey's going to be leading some book studies as well, and a few of our other consultants are adding courses. So hop on over to our beautiful teaching uh, registration page, which is uh, beautifulteaching.coursestorm.com. You can also get there from our classicaleducationpodcast.com website um, on our courses uh, tab. Well, thank you, Karen, for coming on, and I just um, delighted to have you. Delighted to get to know you. Um, I'm I'm so excited over the last years how much I've gotten to know you, and we have known each other for a long time. But just getting to work with you has been a real treat, and getting to travel with you to the school in California. And um, I know that this book is very near and dear to your heart. And I would like to brag that you don't know this, that my copy of Norms and Nobility sits on my bookshelf, very intentionally situated right next to your book, Consider This, (laughs) because uh, David Hicks wrote the preface to your book. And so Trey and I are excited. We have a list of questions to ask you to help us get through uh, some reasons why this book is important and what about it matters. Uh, so Trey, why don't you go ahead and start us off with our first uh, question for Karen? Very good. Well, I'm I'm honored to be here. And and Karen, it's always good to, to be with you and to hear your voice. And uh, along with David Hicks, you are someone who is a part of my origin story, uh, both in my introduction to classical education and you know, as I kind of uh, jumped into the deep end and, and was looking for good things to read, uh, I was certainly reading reading the two of you together. So I'm, I'm always interested when I find a, a book that has a reference to someone else that I know, and it's even more exciting to now get to talk to someone who's going to reference a book that I've read. And so this is just, we can just nerd out together. Uh, because as I was thumbing through my copy of Norms and Nobility, uh, I was just noticing that this book probably next to Abolition of Man is is probably my most uh, written in and annotated. I've got a lot of marginalia. And so I, I just am excited to get back in the conversation with with David Hicks uh, via Karen Glass. I mean, what a <laughs> what a neat opportunity. So I guess as as means of uh, sort of just getting right into um, your interest in the book, um, I'd be curious to know, uh, how you uh, 
first came across the the book and and maybe talk to us a little bit about um, why you uh, think it's an important book for educators. Let me say, first of all, thanks so much for having me back. It's it's an honor to be the first repeat guest. I, I imagine you've had a lot of people you'd like to talk to again, so I feel privileged. Um, but um, I started homeschooling with Charlotte Mason, and I had read her volumes pretty deeply, pretty extensively, and I'd been happily homeschooling for several years, and all of a sudden, I just kind of... Um, bumped into people who were do- using classical education or doing things that they were calling classical education. And there was a lot of, um, I don't want to say comparison and contrast, mostly contrast. Like, oh, you know, you don't want Charlotte, classical education is better than Charlotte Mason because, you know, X, Y, Z reasons. But it was, I really hadn't thought about classical education at that point. Like it just, I, I still had quite young children, all, you know, early elementary school. And I was like, I was, I was interested. I was very obviously just because of having read Charlotte Mason, reading anything in, about classical education or excuse me about education was interesting to me. So I was like, oh well, what should I, you know, what should I read about classical education? And I was sent to Dorothy Sayers' um, essay on the lost tools of learning, and I read that and listen to the way that, you know, people were explaining, you know, the interpretation of, of that and how, it was, you know, how education was based upon, you know, that, that one particular essay. And I thought, well, if that, you know, if that's what classical education is, I should be able to find it. I'm, I'm kind of an original source, sources kind of person. I mean, that's why after reading For the Children's Sake, I went and read Charlotte Mason. And so after reading The Lost Souls of Learning, which is what, 1947, 49, some, it's just, anyway, it's mid-20th century. I thought, well, I'll, I'll go read some other classical educators and I'll understand this, what's going on here better. And when I read the other classical, you know, other read Augustine and, and Erasmus and just all kinds of people from the classical educational tradition, it didn't line up with Dorothy Sayers. It didn't all line up with each other. And I thought, well, I, I this, you know, this is chaotic. This is, you know, this is what classical education is. If you can even define it, I don't, think that this is for me. And then I don't, somebody suggests that I read Norms of Nobility by David Hicks. So I, I invested in the book. It was an investment at the time, even though, um, <laughs> like I said, what I paid for it then would be a bargain price today, but it was an investment. And I started reading it and it's only 150 pages long, but it's a very dense and difficult book to read. I remember, to this day, I remember spending two evenings on two pages. It was, I just got to a point and I was just trying to understand what he was saying. It it was just, I, like I said, two evenings I spent pouring over two pages, just trying to understand what was going on. But as I read through the book and his explanation of classical education, um, I have a lot of marginalia and underlining. This is probably one of my most marked up books as well. And um, I kept writing CM in the margins for Charlotte Mason because he was saying things that reminded me of Charlotte Mason. I did that too, Karen. I did the same thing. <laughs> right. And so I, as I read through the book, I got an entirely different vision for what classical education was all about. And I saw for the first time how Charlotte Mason belonged to that classical education tradition. And so for me, it was a complete shift in paradigm. And also I was able to see how all of the other classical educators that I had read 
sort of fit into this. So it, the reason I think this is such an important book for any teacher or educator who calls, you know, says what they're doing is classical education is because it kind of lifts you up out of all of the mundane and daily obligations of teaching. And it gives you a vision for the whole. And it it makes sure it's not it's not some kind of ethereal, we can never do this. This is beyond, you know, this is just a an ideal image that could never be reality. He keeps it grounded in principles that you'll be able to apply, you know, in on a day-to-day basis in the classroom. And then at the end of the book, he gives you some ideas for how what you know what it might look like practically. But I think that, you know, that that facet of of it, of being able to just be lifted up, to be able to see a vision whole of what education is all about, what its purposes really are and why that matters, it will do something for a teacher that will affect them and their students, you know, forever after. This this book is an absolutely, um, Adrian called it a seven work. I've heard it called that before. I, I really think that this is a book that should not be ignored. In the 20th, 20th, now 21st century, you know, for modern educators who want to call themselves classical and be a part of the classical tradition, I think it's really important that we repeat. Every generation has to hear the ideas re-articulated for their time. You know, you, we can't just all read Plato and and understand. You get a vision for classical education. It has the same ideas, the same questions have to be asked and answered again in every generation. And I think that David Hicks is that for for our current times. Yeah, I, I think that's quite right. I mean, you mentioned the, the the profound effect this book had on you. And I don't, I don't know if it's just early in the morning and I'm feeling frisky, but I would just say that if this book doesn't have an effect on you at all as a reader, you should probably not be in the classroom because this is talking about the heart of what's going on in the school. And so if you're just going in and you're just plugging in a curriculum or if, or if you're just kind of running a script, um, you know, you're probably you're probably in the wrong vocation. And so uh, uh, I wonder if we could just start on the on the front of the book, right, with the title. Um, <laughs> right. That's great. Norms and nobility. Uh, what, what are we talking about here? What does he mean by norms and and what does what does Hicks mean by nobility and how are those two things related? Yeah, I, it's, it's a great point, because, I mean, as a title for a book on education, no popular book would be, you know, on education would be titled something like that norms and nobility. And so right there, like you said, in the very title, we have to stop thinking about, you know, mundane day-to-day, you know, classroom processes and ask ourselves, okay, what do we mean by norms? And in that, I think I was I was reading in, in preparation for this, just only looking at the prologue. I didn't even go past that because you could spend a week just talking about the prologue, which is the problem with this book. And just as I said, it's very dense. It's, there's there's so many ideas that you have to um, contemplate and fit together as you go. But he's talking he's talking about how important it is for education to have a vision that's appropriate for you know everyone, for all humanity, for all mankind, and how what we want education to do is to sort of enculturate our students. You know, to bring them in and give them a, a singular view of the world that everybody can participate in, in spite of differences. So what it is, it, it focuses, the norms focus on the things that make us the same, that make us all humans. You know, we have the same feelings, we have the same um, 
desires. We have the same, you know, um, just these things that make us similar. We think we all, we all, all the same, you know, we think in similar ways. And we have, we have all of those shared things are what education should focus on, bringing people in and helping them understand rather than um, focusing on the differences. So in other words, the kind of education and the things that you would be thinking and talking about, it shouldn't really matter, you know, whether you're in an American classroom or an African classroom or a Chinese classroom, you know, education, a normative education is going to focus on the things that make us similar as a human being rather than on the, you know, the small foibles or, or, or external differences, you know, or, or our, you know, we have different history or we have a different, you know, um, you know, religious system or, or, you know, those things, that's not, that shouldn't be the focus of the, our education shouldn't focus on the things that make us different. I'm actually, I'm sitting here flipping through and trying to find the spot where David Hicks says that so much more eloquently than I did. Yeah. Well, as you're looking for that, maybe I could just insert that, you know, uh, the other thing that he's up to, in addition to bringing us back to uh, what what makes us human and what's shared across time and across cultures, uh, no matter who you are, where you live, there are some some pretty fundamental things that we all share in common, as as you've been alluding to. And the other thing that he's going to get into later in, in the book that I'm sure you'll spend a lot of time uh, considering uh, as you teach through this with your uh, with your students is this idea of the normative inquiry. In other words, uh, instead of just um, asking about what is and uh, and sort of this analytical mode, he, he wants to say, well, how, sh how ought things, how should I phrase this? Uh, no, no, ought is good, ought is a good word. Yeah, ought, exactly. Uh, in other words, well, uh, what, I guess the, the, the question that we could pose is how then should we live? Right, I, f I forget who 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 phrased oh, it right, that right. way, but well, Francis Schaeffer. Right, that that's... was Francis Schaeffer. How then shall we live? Yeah, yeah, and there, and 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 do this with me. This will be fun. There's some connection between Francis Schaeffer and Charlotte Mason, right? There's some missing. There's some link there. Um, um, well, what it is is that Francis Schaeffer's daughter, Susan Schaeffer Macaulay, kind of rediscovered Charlotte Mason because she was in uh, she was living in England her kids went to a school that turned out to be a Charlotte Mason school and that was her introduction to Charlotte Mason and then she wrote the book for the children's sake um, published I think in about 1981 and that was what brought Charlotte Mason to the attention of American educators mm, right. literally without that book she would still be a completely you know unknown yeah a Adrian wouldn't you say that that um, sometimes uh, educators and, and administrators as they're thinking about putting together a program are, are sometimes a little bit afraid of that word ought because um, it seems like uh, I don't know uh, almost as if almost if as if reality is real and we can know it we can know the truth and maybe that'll offend somebody <laughs> yeah yeah I don't know that it's that they're afraid of the word ought um I think that when you say modern educators, do you mean uh, modern educators in the classical movement or modern educators in the non-classical, you know, public school movement? Yeah, that's a good clarifying question. I, I would say, you know, definitely in in our public education, there there mm -hmm. seems to be um, a fear of of saying, you know, this is the way things ought to be. Sure, um, based I guess on. That 
in a sense, yeah, that's what, in a sense, that's what we're getting at with norms. Yeah, I mean, exactly because because it's yeah. not it's just it's not really that we're choosing what are the norms. You know, we are right. actually delving into the reality of the universe to discover what the norms should be. You know, because that's what gives <laughs> us. Um, you know, I'm going to use the word moral authority. You know, for what the norms should be. You know, if we think that it's, mm-hmm. you know, it's normal isn't just what should be norm. Normal isn't quite the right, it, it isn't quite the same thing as a norm. But if we think, you know, it should be the norm that, you know, a person, you know, treats other people with respect or that we right. don't kill each other, you know, when we have a disagreement, that is not just mm. some idea that people came up with. That is part of the moral authority that is built into the universe. And we're so we're still talking about the first half of the title. And we move on right. to the if we move on to the nobility part, that is where David Hicks talks about giving our students an ideal of, you know, to strive for. Not that mm-hmm. not that anybody is ever going to be perfect, but that all of the things that we bring into education are meant to, you know, create a vision for what the best possible person would be like and how they would behave and react in different situations. And so he calls the, he calls that, you know, the ideal image. And it's a very, it's meant to be a very compelling image. It's not, it's not meant to be, oh, we're going to force you to be, you know, to be good and behave this way, but it's meant to be so attractive and so, you know, admirable that we want to inspire our students to desire, you know, to behave like that ideal image. And I mean, you're not going to present it in a didactic sort of way. You know, they're going to meet this ideal image in stories and in history, you know, and in events where people come close to, you know, to meeting that ideal image. So you're not going to lift one person up apart from Christ and say, this is our perfect ideal. You know, we want to be like, you know, pick, pick, you know, whatever historical hero that you could name, but we're we're going to, you know, try to give our students a picture of, you know, what is the best that man could be. Right. In fact, Karen, <clears throat> I love the word nobility. I've I've been using it even in uh my teacher evaluations at the school I, I work at. Just that and this is why the the idea of beauty matters so much. So we've got truth, goodness, and beauty, but beauty matters incredibly for the atmosphere because it raises up our noble nature. You know, God created us in his image and we have a we have a noble nature that ought to be, here we go with our ought, that ought to be cultivated so that we can be raised up to be the fully beautiful human beings that God created us to be and to redeem to redeem that nature in us. And so uh I think the word nobility over the years as I've aged and um, been in education, I think that the word nobility is extremely important and an important idea. And it's interesting you call it an ideal, which it is, but it also is the image in which we were created. And so it is something that we ought to be striving for because right. it's honoring to God. It's honoring to our creator when we embrace the truth that we we were created to uh, to to be beautiful human beings, mm. um, and, and to really embrace that that nature that is in us, right? Mm. Obviously, we've sinned, and obviously, we've fallen, and obviously, we are always striving 
to, um, or we ought to be as Christians striving to be like Christ and the examples of the saints that have gone before us who have followed Christ. Um, but that idea of the nobility, I think, is is very important. The older I get, the more important I think it is. And I even think it's important for teachers to dress in a way at school when they when they go to school to raise up their noble nature, mm. to show children what beauty is and what goodness is in, in the way we carry ourselves, how we dress helps to elevate how we speak, right? There's there's studies on this, <laughs> that, that if you try to work in your pajamas, you don't do as well as if you actually get up and get dressed and put your makeup on and do your hair, whatever, you know, shave. shave that, that you're raising up the, the better side of you to do better, to think better. I mean, even when I homeschooled my kids, and I'm going to get off on a little bit of a rabbit trail on this. When I homeschooled my kids, we woke up and we did our, we did chores before we went to bed, chores when we woke up because I could not think clearly in a house that was messy. We cleared the breakfast table. We put the dishes where they needed to be. We wiped the table. We swept the floor. I couldn't think clearly in that kind of a mess. I needed to have order, I guess, if you will. And order to me is tied to nobility I, I think there's a, a direct tie to that. And um, so, yeah, we're spending a lot of time mm. on, on that idea. But go ahead, no, I think, Trey. I think, that, I think that's helpful, Adrian. Uh, there's this very mysterious command that Christ gives us when he tells us to be ye perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. And really the only way to, to enter into that is to have a... Uh, understanding of of teleology, which, um, you know, we could explore uh, in depth. But for our purposes here, it's this idea of uh, what are we supposed to aim at, right? Um, and, and, and what is our end? What is, what are we created for? And I, I think that's what Christ is, is commanding us to, to enter into is, is essentially, to, to paraphrase it, be exactly who God made you to be. And don't don't be anything else. To to be anything else is to miss the mark or to miss the point, uh, or to sin. We could say, but what uh, we want to do here is think about okay, well, what does that mean within the context of education? Because if there is something to aim at, um, we we need to know what that is, and then we need to know what we need to do along the way as as we work towards that that aim. And and I think in so many ways, uh, that's what. That's what calls us uh, further up and further in to, to, to be more noble, to be more um, mm -hmm. uh, normal in the sense that we have deviated from the norm, right? God created a norm, and then we departed from it. And, and Hicks is going to say, well, well, we can actually get back to that. And in so doing, we can, um, we can call ourselves to, to who, who we're you know, created to be. Mm -hmm. Right. And that's, that's the thing is that David Hicks, all of those things that you guys were talking about, he brings those things in and focuses them on a few specific ideas that a teacher, you know, even if you can't think about this, you know, every single day as you get up and teach, you really want it to be part of the background, part of the foundation of your thoughts about education as a whole. And so one of the things that he he really kind of calls our, you know, modern educational practices. And this is straight across the board in churches, in Christian schools, and every, everywhere, as well as in our institutional schools, is, is that we have, since the Enlightenment, kind of 
focused on a certain kind of thinking that is antithetical to what I would call actual biblical thinking and the the way that education taught students to think in the historical part the past as part of the classical tradition, because we have a tendency since the Enlightenment to do everything very scientifically and analytically. And we, our approach to learning, and this is going to sound perfectly sensible to anybody who was educated in an institutional school or went to teacher college, is we're going to break it down into manageable bite-sized pieces, you know, and that is how we will learn is from all of these little, we'll take all of these little discrete bits of knowledge and eventually we hope we'll put them together into something that's meaningful. It, it doesn't work that way because when you analyze things, knowledge and information, you know, and break it apart without ever first encountering a hole, mm-hmm. you don't care enough about those little pieces to hold on to them, you know, yeah. you just, uh, just let them go. I can tell you how it how it works in in graduate school. At least you know this is anecdotal, but I, I think it I think it's pretty. Uh, this this approach is is present in in most schools, and uh, uh, most places of higher education. Uh, not only is it we're going to break this down, but then we're going to show you how this one theorist thinks about it, 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 and then we're never going to put it back together. And so it's really you know you you get this like Humpty Dumpty. Uh, sort of take on life, which is like, it doesn't matter how many experts are out there, like no one can put this thing back together. Okay, good luck. You know, like now you're a graduate. (laughs) Humpty Dumpty is a great analogy. Yeah, I love it. It really is. It really is. Mm -hmm. Um, And then, and so David Hicks says that's, you know, we can't completely eliminate that from our, our culture and our thinking, but he says we can at least, you know, bring back this other way of thinking, which he calls dialectical thinking. Um, I use the word and consider this synthetic thinking, but it's it's the same thing. It's the idea that you are working toward connections and bringing things together and understanding. And specifically with dialectic and his way of his, you know, his, his approach to that is that you have to have a starting point. He, he uses the word dogma, which is a terribly unpopular word, but his point is that you have to begin with accepting something, believing something. You know, you have a starting point, and then as you encounter new ideas and new information, you will test them against what you already think mm-hmm. and believe and probably adapt, you know, and change, you know, to the extent that, it, you know, you can be convinced, you know, that another thing is true. So just I, I don't have a good concrete example. He, he, he you know, he, he, understanding what he meant by dialectical thinking was one of those things that took me a little bit of time when I first read through this. But it's one of the things that I think would, is incredibly valuable, this idea of understanding how thinking should be whole, dialectical, synthetic, whatever word you want to use it, so that we understand that we what we really want to give children is not a whole bunch of little discrete, you know, um, separate pieces and hope they can put the puzzle together. Um, But that we want to give them a vision for something whole, give them something whole. And then later on, when they, once they have that vision, you can do the, you can do the analysis thing. You can break it down because you can, you don't, you don't lose your understanding of a whole thing. So um, one, and one of the reasons for that, that I, that I think is really important and, and I, I know that the roots of this are are from reading 
um, norms of nobility, but it's it's tied very directly to Charlotte Mason. And, and I think that uh, Charlotte Mason and David Hicks would have gotten along great. In fact, in the bibliography to Norms of Nobility, her book, Philosophy of Education, is in that bibliography. He wrote this before her books were reprinted in the modern, so he must have had an older copy, you know. Before the six volumes were reprinted in 1989, he originally wrote Norms of Nobility in 81, so he didn't have access to all of them, but he had seen Philosophy of Education, and he doesn't name her in the book, but her book is there in his prologue. And so I think that the two of them are on the same page when it comes to this idea that part of the reason that we want to give children something whole and something that will be meaningful to them is that they then it, it creates in them a caring. You know, they because because they have you know the possibility of understanding, they'll care more about what they're learning, and that caring will make the difference between you know <laughs> I learned this for the test and I'm never going to think about it again as long as I live, or it becomes you know they take it in and it becomes part of who they are, and that makes it really obvious you know from a from a a curriculum or an academic standpoint you know what should be the focus of our of our educational endeavors you know do we want to get do we really want to give children tons of pieces of information that they aren't going to care enough to remember or do we want to give them you know do we want to spend the precious time that we have you know in the classroom or during our teaching time giving them a vision of something bigger and whole that will matter to them and hopefully you know critical pieces of information will stick because they care about something whether mm -hmm. that's history or science or in literature it doesn't really matter what the subject area is, is the basic idea that if a student cares they will make it part of themselves and remember and if they don't it doesn't matter if they get an a on the test they're not going to remember it's not going to become a part of who they are shaping them as a person and so in Norms and Nobility, like I said, he kind of lifts you up and makes you look past, you know, you, know, you don't want to think about education as just, you know, get our kids to pass the test, get them, you know, to do well in the SATs, let, you know, so that they can, you know, perform well in any, in any, you know, setting. We're talking about, you know, human beings and our goal as educators should be about teaching them to be the best human beings, the best people that they can be. And, you know, that's kind of the big picture. And then he approaches it, like I said, in Norms of Nobility, he's going to discuss the, that, that dialectical thinking. He's going to talk about the ideal image. Um, he's going to focus on what he uses the word virtue when he saw, he doesn't use nobility all through the book, but he's going to talk about virtue and, you know, how virtue can be taught you hope you hope that you know in a in such a way so that it will actually have an effect on on your children on your students and they actually will grow in virtue you know while we're you know through the process of what they're teaching them not just to be able to answer a question on a test you know what's good what's bad but that it'll actually make a difference in the way that they behave david mm -hmm. Hicks, sorry i know i'm talking and talking no david karen Hicks, i guess I, I i i'm sorry i'm interrupting you i just no, wanted no. to see if you could share i mean i know that you've taught this uh, book study before in the past you've led a book study on this so you're you've this isn't the first time you've led this book study no no i've done it um and you and i spoke a lot about how we wanted the book study to be um executed so that uh, because it is such a, a a meaty book we didn't want people to fly through it 
Um, and well, so you, you paste, <laughs> right. You paste it in such a way that the meetings will be what every two weeks, right. Every Instead of every weeks, week. Right. So it's going to be a longer commitment, but there will be some, you know, videos available each week if, if they miss, miss one. Um, cause right. I'm sure be, some people have, will go on spring break in the middle of it and whatnot. Well, but, but and, I I've had, that, and I have had some people in time zones where it just doesn't work. Some of the people sure. in, my, in my other classes, they, I, I think, I don't know, Singapore, it was, it was, you know, but we, we really do want to encourage people to attend as many as they can, because we want there to be a conversation, not just a lecture. Right. right? Well, in my, in my, in my course, I use a space where we can have that online as well. There'll be lots and lots of course material, you know, written material to help while you're reading to just, you know, if you need some help grasping some of the, you know, what, what you're, what you're reading, David Hicks is on an easy read. Um, right. Well, I read the book a long time ago, and it's been a, quite a while. So I'm actually going to take your class. Oh, fun. <laughs> I'm going to participate. Um, uh, tell us a little bit about what kinds of questions he asks in the book. Do well, you, yeah. Yeah. I think maybe I that's just, where you were going when I interrupted you, right, actually. Right, right, right. One of the things that is, he asked the best questions, and this is what I think is one of the things that I think is absolutely the key to linking any educator into the classical tradition is the questions that they ask because classical educators ask certain kinds of questions and they never ask, you know, what curriculum should I use for math? That's not a question that a classical educator will begin by asking. You might, you might have to at some point say that, but they began with questions like on page four, Norms of Nobility, he says, what is man and what are his purposes? I mean, these are really big ideas. And that's where real classical educators started, you know, because first we want to understand, you know, what, what is, you know, what is a person? What do we, you know, what, what does this, and what are his purposes? What's he here for? What is, what is the meaning? You know, you want, we want our lives to have meaning and, and the lack of meaning in modern culture, society, and education is what part of what has kind of created this incredible um, you know, increase in suicide rates and the hopelessness that I, I, I really, I, I see it, I read it. Um, if you pick up almost any piece of, of modern literature, that's what you'll find. You'll find hopelessness. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, the classical educators, they said, you know, what is man, what are his purposes? And you think about those things, you know, what we're here for. And then, you know, you ask yourself the question, well, what, what does this person need? You know, what do they need to become, you know, to fulfill the purposes that they have here? And then education just runs in a whole different channel than it does when you say, okay, you know, it's not meaningful to say, well, this person needs to get a job so that he can, you know, feed himself and continue living and breathing so he can do his job until he dies. Like, that's not very meaningful. Nobody finds meaning in that. And so, but if that's what education is focused on, well, it's just going to help you get a good job. It doesn't, it doesn't Mm -hmm. help you find a place or find meaning in your life, you know, here on earth. And that is what, you know, you're seeing in, in the younger generation, because for the last several generations in America, at least, that seemed um, like it was working. Like, oh, you get an education, you'll get a better paying job, and you'll have a better life. And so for a couple of generations, life seemed to be better, more comfortable, people were more prosperous. And now it, that's not true. 
you know, getting a great education, you know, yeah. no matter how many how high of a college degree you have, doesn't mean you're going to have a better, you know, physically more comfortable life. That goal isn't necessarily attainable. So rather than saying, well, you know, it's not worth doing anything, we have to go back to these questions. Well, what are we really here for? Not just so we can have a good job yeah. and to, to, you know, a, a family and a two-car garage and all that. There's more to it. Right. It, it, it's almost as if Solomon knew what he was talking about, uh, or, or the writer of Ecclesiastes, uh, the, the the preacher there. Um, so, as I recall, uh, David Hicks wants to talk to the teacher, and he wants to he wants to imbue the teacher with the spirit of the tradition, in such a way that that teacher will uh, enter into a relationship with. Uh, the student that passes that tradition on and and demonstrates through through the life of the teacher both through the the content and um, the the methodology and and the practices in the classroom but also just through the life of the teacher you know this is what the teacher believes this is the, what the teacher knows to be true this is what the teacher is aiming at and that that's an invitation mm -hmm. to the student to to uh, a meaningful life uh, because it is embodied by the teacher and so I think it's I think it's well worth the teacher's time to uh, read something that, yeah, you know, um, this is this is going to be heavy lifting uh, in terms of you know what we're used to getting, um, you know, even even in even in teacher uh, training programs or you know if you've gone to school and have a degree in education, I'm just going to go ahead and put this out there. Even if you have a PhD in education, um, David Hicks is gonna is gonna challenge. Uh, you on a level that you know you need to be challenged, and so to to enter into that uh, with uh, you as our our Virgil, so to speak, <laughs> I think it would be well worth anyone's time because that's really uh, to to get back to the search for meaning. I think even teachers are are sort of weary of of where we're at and thinking, man, you know, let's get back to what it means to be reading in community um, and to actually come together <laughs> around. Uh, something worth worth reading together, and just talk it out with other with other people who are uh, called in the same way, and you know, in doing that, um, I think it will rem remind people that they're not alone in all of this, and it'll also give them um, you know some really, as you said, meaty things to chew on, uh, and that's really what teachers should be doing. You know, a, a school is a place, and maybe David Hicks said this. Um, I was reading it somewhere. A school is a place where teachers learn as well as students, right. um, because we're the first students. Uh, and, we're, and we're just uh, kind of like Josh Gibbs said in our interview, just pointing to mm -hmm. back and back and back all the way to God himself, uh, because mm -hmm. that's he's the source of, of all truth, goodness and beauty. That is that is, I think, really important is that teachers have to be learners, um, mm -hmm. because if you ever reach a point where you think, you know, well, OK, I'm done. I don't there's nothing else for me to learn or, or I don't want to learn anything else. You really you can't be a teacher from that from from that you know from that posture, you, the, the, uh, because the whole um, spirit of inquiry that's what David David Hicks yes um, that's my favorite of, quote is part of his definition of a classical education which for whatever reason I can't find can you I read it here? can I read it yes, I know please. right where it is because it's my favorite quote like I, I have all, it underlined but I... so all of my teacher training 
everything I do is based on this quote, really. Mm-hmm. Uh, in fact, Kiernan Fiore and Robin Johnson, the three of us, when we were at the University of Dallas, we developed a whole session that we teach to schools that are new to classical education. If they're transitioning or they're brand new open school, we do a session on what is the spirit of classical education. And it came right from this page 18, the very okay. top. It says, classical education is not preeminently of a specific time or place. It stands instead for a spirit of inquiry and a form of instruction concerned with the development of style through language and of conscience through myth. This key word here is inquiry. Everything springs from the special nature of the inquiry. The inquiry dictates the form of instruction and establishes the moral framework for thought and action. That, that again, there, here we are with dense, right? That's just like- I was gonna say, well, that'll give you a taste, that'll give you a little taste of David Hicks prose. <laughs> but if you really absorb what he's saying there, that ought to inform your pedagogy how you're teaching, no matter what curriculum you're using, you ought to be able to look at that curriculum and pull out what's good and beautiful and turn it into a spirit of inquiry. So I'll give you an example of how I've done this. So we went to one of the schools down in uh, Waco that we transitioned into a classical model. They were using, I think, McGraw-Hill literature books, which all of us in the classical education world would be like, oh, no, but we we were flipping through the books. It might have actually been Pearson. I don't remember. It was one of those big publishers. And they actually had chosen excellent poems. They had chosen excerpts from beautiful stories. And the school didn't really have the funds to buy, you know, everything that we would recommend they switch to. But so what we went in as we went in, Robin and I went in and tabbed all the pages of the literature book that we thought these are actually good stories, short stories, and we're talking about like fourth and fifth grade, third, fourth, fifth grade. But we told the teachers, don't use the questions. Just don't use the comprehension questions. Here instead is how you ask. So we modeled for them what a spirit of inquiry looks like, and here instead is what would be a better question to ask and how to teach. As long as your stories and your content is is decent, you can you can develop the spirit of inquiry. And I would like to encourage teachers that are listening to our show that are in a public school to to take this class because you will walk away learning how to uh, understand what a spirit of inquiry is. It'll make you think and wrestle with how can I make this happen in my classroom? And I'm going to be teaching some one-off sessions, you know, like 90-minute and two-hour sessions that complement what Karen's going to be uh, talking about in the book. So I'm, I'm, I'm the practical girl. I'm like, how do we do this in the classroom? So yeah, I'm definitely. offering a few classes during your book study that help, you know, the teachers, the homeschool mm-hmm. mom, the parent, anybody get into, okay, well, what does this look like? How, how, what does the spirit of inquiry look like in a lesson? Right. Yeah. So that's, anyhow, yeah, that's, 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 that's my really favorite good quote. advice. <laughs> I, I, uh, I, wanna, I, I just wanted to please. point out too, that this quote that Adrian just read ties in perfectly with the title norms and nobility, because the spirit of inquiry is about understanding what those norms are. That's what you're looking for. You're looking for those truths that, you know, will shape your behavior and influence you to, you know, toward virtue, to be the best person you can be. And the development of style through language and of conscience through myth. And as you develop, the, developing the conscience is, is about, you know, that seeking after that nobility, you know, seeking that. So this, I know it's, 
th th this is a fantastic um, definition of classical education. And I really appreciate the fact that he says it's not preeminently of a specific time or place. It really, we do not, you do not have to try and replicate exactly what you read in, you know, Plato or Aristotle or Erasmus. Great ideas, but it it isn't just because something is old that makes it classical. It's the questions that, that those eternal, you know, recurring vital questions that we ask about, you know, <laughs> what is man and what is his purposes that will keep our education running, you know, in these grooves toward norms and nobility, regardless of, you know, what age we live in. Right. And Karen, I think you would agree with me that narration sets up the spirit of inquiry. Oh, narration is fantastic. At the very back of the book, or in the, I was looking at, David Hicks has this chapter toward the end that he calls Some Questions and Answers. So, oh, no, Some Questions and Assumptions, what ought to be. That's what he says. Um, and this is, you know, in, in, as far as reading the book goes, you, you come to this long after you've gone through all of the discussion. But he asks some specific questions. Um, and some of them are questions for administrators, some for teachers, some, you know, to both. But to teachers, he says, well, how do you teach better writing and more intelligent communication? And in my book, I wrote narration. <laughs> and in thinking, hey. how do you teach clear, forthright, incisive thinking? You know, how do you give your students a more critical attitude toward what they read, see, or hear? And the answer is narration. Narration. <laughs> yes, right. And so... Half of the things that, you know, he sets up, you know, you narration, that one particular activity, just yeah, and, and it, it, in a classroom, you know, that could be, it becomes a dynamic process between the students. It sure does. And, and a group right. of teachers. There's so much to narration. I'm, I'm going to be teaching many courses on narration over the course of this next year. I work at a school that's been implementing narration for three years, and they're kind of ready to go to the next level. And I'm realizing there are many stages of narration, and I've got a whole chart about that and how how one stage leads to the next. And you have some of this in your know and tell book, and you're going to be also leading that starting in March. And I, narration to me is so important. And Quintilian said it was the most important art that, of rhetoric that was lost, uh, that the Greeks had applied well. Um, I, I, I think that the reason narration is so important is because it sets up, it sets up the spirit of inquiry because it allows the student to wrestle with what they've heard process it, tell it back. But while they're doing that, they're asking questions. And you as the teacher get to hear what they heard in the story. And then what it does for the teacher is it helps the teacher to ask more questions based on the narrations. Well, tell me more about that part of the story that you just narrated. What happened there? It Actually, what it does is it allows you to dig more deeply into into the text in in this inquisitive uh, spirit. I, I know that you would agree with me. I'm sure uh, any of our listeners who do narration, if you're not experiencing that with your students, you may uh, be a little stale in, in narration and be ready to move on to the next level of taking it deeper. And and uh, I'll have some classes for you on that. So. Okay. I'm going to jump in here real quick uh, because uh, I don't want you guys to spill all the candy in, in the lobby here. Just just sign up and take their classes. Um, I think it'll be well worth well worth your time and and really um, as I as I've tried to as I've tried to encourage folks, you know, this is this is the proper um, uh, activity of the teacher uh, is to is to 
enter uh, in that position as a student and, and, and be in community with other teachers so that we can learn from each other and both learn from uh, from David Hicks. And, and then I'd encourage people to, to take a class that I'm going to be launching again for the second time, uh, which will be uh, a, a seminar where we read through Stratford Caldecott's Beauty and the Word. And I think Caldecott uh, just fits in with all these other uh, folks so well. Uh, because mainly they're drawing from the same deep wells. A lot of what you were saying that Hicks says about dogma, uh, Caldecott goes into in detail uh, in conversation with G.K. Chesterton. And G.K. Oh. Chesterton uh, has uh, has some really fine things to say about Charlotte Mason. And if we haven't already, we'll, we'll, we'll be launching a, we'll, we'll publish on our Patreon a uh, two essays that Chesterton wrote and I had recorded by a voice actor uh, where, in praise of Charlotte Mason. So all these people are connected. All these people are, are, are oriented towards the same things. And, and what a privilege it is that we can journey together with them. Right. Well, right. When you read these books and talk with you know, current teachers about these ideas, we literally just enter into this ancient tradition. And it's just a, it's a very human activity you know, to huh. be a part of. And... You know, we're not all going to be remembered long after, but, but you know, we're, we're part of the living process. This is why classical education is not just a dry and dusty, you know, relic from the past that we're just trying to, you know, keep alive, you know, with, with, on life support, in, you know, in the current age. It's really a living, breathing ideas embodied in, you know, teachers and parents and students who are consciously, you know, knowingly entering in and doing, you know, this, asking these same questions and going through these same, um, you know, in, in intellectual inquiries as, as our predecessors in the past. Well, thank you, Karen. This was amazing. And uh, Trey and I are very excited about this uh, and about all the classes we're going to have on our website. So uh, we appreciate you coming and joining us again today. And well, I'm excited for, for excited for what the Lord is going to do and helping parents and, and teachers through this amazing, like you said, life-giving book. So thank yeah. you so much. Well, and again, for our listeners, thank you so much. And uh, if you want to uh, register for Karen's class, Trey's class, classes on his books as well, and any of my courses and some of our other consultants as well, uh, visit beautifulteaching.coursestorm.com or classicaleducationpodcast.com. Thank you for listening. Thank you so much for listening. We invite you to experience the art of teaching through interactive learning communities at our Patreon page. Visit patreon.com forward slash classical education. Also, be sure to join the conversation on our Facebook community at facebook.com forward slash groups forward slash classical education. We are a listener-supported podcast, so your support makes this podcast possible. As the great artist and educator John Ruskin once wrote, Well, my friends, the final result of the education I want you to give your children will be, in a few words, this. They will know what it is to see the sky. They will know what it is to breathe it. And they will know, best of all, what it is to behave under it, as in the presence of a Father who is in heaven.